There's a couple of authors, uh, their brothers, their name are Dan and Chip Heath. They've written books like Made to Stick, Decisive. Uh, one of them wrote Upstream, but there was this book that they wrote, and they're kind of like kindred spirits of mine, of people that I never met, but I just love how they think, how they present things, how they shape leadership, and they've really made a huge difference just in how I think. But they wrote this book called uh, Switch, addressing how to change when change is hard. And often throughout their books, they're giving real life examples of how things have actually happened. And they gave this very simple example about a student, a high school student, how he changed by hearing something different. You see, the storyline is this, is that Bobby was referred to counseling because he kept getting kicked out of class. He was like the troublemaker in his entire high school. He was constant trips to the principal's office, constant nagging of his teachers. In fact, when he'd walk into the room, I'm pretty sure he was one of those kids where the teachers are just like, out. Let's just, let's just start the day by going to the principal. Now, part of my resignation, resignation with this guy is that when I was in junior high, they actually bought me a model to work on as I waited for the principal outside of his office. It was a car engine, because they're like, if you can figure out how to work on cars, that would actually benefit you, because the direction you're heading, Dale, is not a good one. But there's this guy named Bobby. And so they finally, um, finally referred him to counseling. So this counselor is getting into his life, and he's thinking, man, his home life is a train wreck. That's not going to be of help. So here's the conversation the counselor had. Hey, Bobby. Is there a class you don't get in trouble in? Well, I don't get in trouble in Mrs. Smith's class. Why not? She's nicer. What makes her nicer? I don't know. She just is. So the counselor wanted to see it for themselves. This counselor followed Bobby around to every single one of his classes, and she observed these things happening in Mrs. Smith's class. Every morning when Bobby walked in, he was greeted with this in this class period. And after giving instructions, she always touched base with Bobby to make sure he understood what the assignments that day were because Bobby had some learning disabilities. And she said something of encouragement to Bobby each and every day. This gave the counselor something of clarity to bring to the other teachers to see if this one bright spot, the only bright spot, in Bobby's day could be replicated in other things. After sharing this with the teachers three months later, the number of days that Bobby was sent to the principal's office had declined 80%. Most days in at least five out of his six classes, he didn't get kicked out, which is an amazing measurement. How was your day? Why well, I didn't get kicked out of five of the classes. In fact, they said at one point, his behavior became at least acceptable in all six of his classes. He's still not a model student, but something had changed. You see, there was this one teacher that did not let Bobby's actions of the past or their perception of lack of hope for future change stop the opportunity right in front of them. Let's create a space, this teacher thought a space. She believed this teacher, Mrs. Smith, that Bobby already had a space. She just had to find it and cultivate it. Author Henry Nouwen makes this observation around space. 
A spiritual discipline is something that creates space in our life. But it's not just space for space's sake. It's space for Christ. It points us in the Jesus way. So how is your space? The gospel writers refer to it as kind of the soil where the seed lands. How's your soil? How's the space? I've uh, discovered something. There's a story that I will tell to different groups over the past 20, 30 years as a different kind of analogy. And I've discovered that when I tell this story, people respond to it in different ways. And I think it kind of goes through a filter of people's lives that makes them do this. The story goes like this. I grew up the youngest of six kids. Some of you already have an impression of what that might mean. Now, the youngest of six were only eight and a half years apart. So my mom was continually pregnant for like a long time. But she always says, I feel the best when I'm pregnant. And I'm like, whatever, mom. Obviously, when we showed up to restaurants, it was quite a scene. I always thought, wow, this is really cool. They give us the whole back room. <laughs> when we'd show up to campgrounds and have like a campsite, suddenly the other campers around us picked up their stuff and left. And I'm like, we got all this space. I mean, can you imagine your way with your buddies, man, a quiet weekend, all of a sudden this family shows up? One of the things my dad loved to do, my dad loved snow skiing. And so the way you continue your, uh, the things you love when you become a father or a mother is you teach your kids the same thing so you can continue. That's why my daughter goes to football games with me <laughs> way before she knew what was going on so I can continue to go. So if you can imagine this, eight, you know, six kids, eight and a half years apart at a ski resort. Now we would find those resorts in the 70s that under 12 was free. Oh, it was awesome. My dad would go to the ticket booth, one adult, six free kids. Because we were very young. And we would be scattered all over the ski resort. My dad was a pretty stoic guy. He kind of just shot us straight about how things were. Now, being the youngest of six, we were scattered around the ski resort. And my dad would often say, Dale, stay on this hill. And I, but I longed to be with my brothers as they were going down these other amazing hills. I remember one morning, I was skiing, I think, by myself. Because back in the 70s, you didn't care, so you just sent your sons to ski by himself. <laughs> so at, at lunchtime, I was happy to see my siblings and my dad. And I'm like, Dad, I didn't fall once all morning. I'm amazing. And my dad looked at me and said, maybe you're not trying difficult enough hills. <laughs> That's a different response. <laughs> to some, they hear that story and like, oh, you poor baby. Your dad was too hard on you. And other people are like, heck yeah, suck it up, kid. You're not doing enough. <laughs> and it kind of depends because there's not like this transferable truth in what my dad said. Your response might be either like, oh, finally, a dad who's shooting it straight or that poor baby. He must have had a rough childhood. What else happened? <laughs> a lot. When I tell that story at a men's retreat, trying to, trying to like motivate, some of them are like, yeah. If I would tell this at a ladies' retreat, and in general, they're like, want to mother me and protect me. My mom would have slapped my dad if he heard her say that. <laughs> Maybe. But here's my point. What you hear 
and how you hear it. Because there's a filter that goes to our heart, to our space. And that very filter and the things that are in that filter can be stopping or limiting what God's communication is to you as well. I want to read some scripture to you. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of the writer to, uh, of this letter to the Hebrews just spends an entire chapter. He didn't write it in chapters. He's writing a letter. But he spent an entire section of time talking about these amazing people of faith. He's writing this to a Jewish audience. So there's great agreement about all of these heroes of faith. And then he turns and says something about a different hero of faith that maybe they weren't on the same page about. Let me read this to you. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these heroes of faith of the past, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Let me just pause for a second pray. Father, these words from your word point us all to a place. Many of us resist the difficult things in this life so much, and yet your word promises us a harvest is coming when we don't resist the things you have for us. Speak to us, clear the filter, access the space. Your name, amen. There's a lot in there. 
But here's the three observations I just want us to focus on in the next few minutes. One, there is a value of perseverance. And I want to talk about where it comes from. Two, rejecting redirection is rejecting maturity. And three, training happens all along the way. My first observation is this that the writer is making is that there is a value of perseverance. And where does it come from? He says this, and let us run with perseverance so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you reverse this phrase and ask it as a question, how many of you want to grow weary and lose heart? (laughs) That's usually not on our life goals. This might hit your space a little different if I ask it that way. Perseverance is not simply how you continue to move forward when you are weary, when you are tired. Perseverance is so you don't become weary and you don't become tired. It's not the the personal strength and the will to hang on. It's coming from a different place. It has to be. The writer makes this declaration, though. He says, let us not grow weary. Let us have perseverance. It's not an I, it's an us. And that seems to be an integral part of any kind of perseverance. Because when there's isolation, there is weariness. But when there is together and when there is camaraderie and then there is reinforcement, there is perseverance. We give ourselves a chance to persevere when we identify a few things. The first thing is obvious. We've got to get rid of those things that we're hanging on to. The excess weight, the things that are just making us tired. Some of those are sin. I have to ask myself sometimes, how am I being ungratefully forgiven? Because if we're gratefully forgiven, it is easy to go, man, I got to get rid of this stuff. But if you're ungratefully forgiven, it means God has done the work and you're like, I don't really care about what you've done. I want to partake. And it's a distinct attack on any kind of perseverance that we can have. Some of this extra weight isn't sin, though. It's expectations. I think the, the, the weight of expectations is a huge clog in so many of us. It causes us to strive out of weakness or what we think God should be doing or how God should be doing this or what you think other people should be doing, how you think other should, people should be behaving or how life should be. My belief in circumstances should align Like, if I'm doing these things for God, my end result should be this all the time. This one, if you don't deal with it, it will drain you immensely. A perseverance comes from this place. Because otherwise, if I might just persevere, it'll be an act of self-will and you'll be motivated. I can do this. So where does it come from? You see, I believe perseverance comes from living out of this place of strength. It could be a skill. It could be a gift that God gave you. It could also be a reservoir that has been built up so that when there are droughts, there is a a restoring of what you can have still. 
Because sometimes we need to approach things as we need to approach them, as God designed you to approach them, and not in the traditional ways. Here's a silly example. When my daughter was young, maybe five or six, we thought it would be a great idea to sign her up for soccer. She had never played soccer before. She loved to dance. But something to know about my daughter, the first couple years of her life, she didn't really talk. And we grew greatly concerned about that. So we brought her to the doctor, get her hearing tested. We thought it might be some developmental things. What are some things we could do? But how I remember it, when my daughter started to talk, she didn't say words, she said sentences, probably paragraphs. In fact, it got to the point where I was worried that she actually wasn't breathing between the sentences and phrases. To this day, I have to say, Anna, breathe. My daughter's strength, and still is, is the use of many words in a short amount of time. Soccer. My daughter, now this, is, we're supposed to, whatever. This is just how I'm wired. It probably goes back to my dad saying, maybe you should try harder hills. My daughter touched the soccer ball the entire season, maybe twice, maybe three times. That's not a strong, like, traditional way of playing. She played defense. But there's a gift she had. One game she was playing against a team and one of her friends was like a really good soccer player at like six. I don't know what that does for you, but she was good. And she could score a lot of goals. My daughter was playing defense. So my daughter used her strength, which was what? Talking. She went up to her friend and she just started talking, giving a conversation. The game's going on. And, and the, the, good, the girl who's really good just was talking to Anna, and Anna's picking up flowers. And at one point, my daughter turned entirely her back to the rest of the field and just kept talking to her. And I'm like, this is brilliant. <laughs> she has missed out on so many scoring opportunities because Anna's just talking to her. The girl's dad sees what's happening. And he's like, Kimmy, which was the girl's name, get away from Anna. And me being an amazing dad is, Anna, keep talking to Kimmy. <laughs> Kimmy's dad was the coach on the other team. He's like, Dale, that's not how you play. And I'm like, it ain't how you play, but it's how we play. <laughs> that girl on the other team didn't touch the ball for like the whole first half because Anna just kept talking to her. Now... My daughter is the most legit 21-year-old. I mean, she is legit in so many ways, but she is a really bad soccer player. <laughs> but in those moments, she did what she could do, not according to the rules of society, but just who she was. Because it came from a different space. It came from a different place. It's not just the strengths or your natural interests and talents, but it's also from what you have learned from your experience, your failures, success, your successes. Perseverance comes from this place. Just be faithful each day. Because our battle is not traditional. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against people. Scripture tells us our battle is spiritual. 
And when we fight spiritual things in traditional physical ways, we do not persevere. We're showing up incorrectly. We're showing up with the wrong kind of ammunition. This past year, obviously, has brought up so many things. And for many people, these things already existed in your life before. They just now rose to the top because you didn't have much else to do. And for many, we thought, man, the moments of this year is driving me to these places I'd never been before. But it also could be the things we've actually been avoiding rose to the top. For a long time in my life, I had these lists of things that I saw as stress relievers. I'm stressed. I need to go for a walk. I'm stressed. I need to go to a ball game, which is what I usually do. I'm stressed. I need to go do these other things. But what I became honest with is these weren't really stress relievers. They just were diversions from thinking about that which was bothering me from my space. And when we are alone, even in these moments of solitude, of spiritual discipline, it's all that stuff that comes up and we can't wait to go do something else and push it back down. But that space has to be clear. As the author of Hebrews also identifies, perseverance comes from other people. And also, so does the drain of perseverance come from other people. Parker J. Palmer in his book, Let Your Life Speak, says this. When I give something I do not possess, I give you a false and dangerous gift. A gift that looks like love, but it is in reality loveless. A gift given more from my need to prove myself than from the other's need to be cared for. That kind of giving is not only loveless, but faithless based on the arrogant and mistaken notion that God has no way of channeling love to the other except through me. Yes, we are created in and for community to be there in love for one another. But community cuts both ways. When we reach the limits of our own capacity to love, community means trusting someone else to be available to that person in need. When we are living out of weakness and despair, we pass that on to people. And that is why perseverance comes from an us. As believers, we're called to forgive one another. There's an inevitability. It says it all through Scripture, to forgive, to forgive. So there's inevitability, which this implies what? We're also going to tick each other off. Therefore, you tick me off and I get to forgive you. That's part of how God put this thing into place. So there's an expected amount of things that will just happen between us. But we should also be striving to decrease the amount of times we have to forgive each other. That should also be the thing in place. The writer of Ecclesiastes identifies this very issue as the dull axe. In Ecclesiastes 10.10, 10, he writes this, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of bringing success. If you have an axe and you're trying to chop down a tree and it's dull, you get really, really tired. So our response to being fatigued and self-care is to simply rest. But if you pick up that same dull axe and swing it again, fatigue is on its way. It is not self-care if sharpening is not a part 
of your rest. Because sharpening that place of where you are and how you receive things has to become clearer. Which leads me to my next observation. Rejecting redirection is simply rejecting maturity. Submit to the Father of spirits and live. There was two different ways I was confronted that for me the need to grow up. One time I was at this conference. I was in my 20s. I was a youth pastor. I thought of myself as being pretty legit. I'm not sure how I got there because social media didn't exist and it wasn't there to tell me how great I really was. But somehow, whatever score I was keeping, that you kept score in the late 80s, early 90s, maybe it was kids in my youth group, but whatever it was, I felt pretty legit about myself. I was kind of towards my later 20s, like 26 and a half, I don't know, 27. I wasn't one of those just out of college babies, as if I was so grown up, but I wasn't one of those out of touch people in their 30s. So I was at this, and I was at this conference with a couple thousand people, and the speaker was up there talking, and he was a guy in New York City who did this amazing ministry, and to the entire crowd, says there's a group of people here that are so smart, that are so wise, beyond their years, they're so insightful, we need to learn from them. And I'm like, who? And then he says, who's here is in your 20s? And this big roar of everybody in their 20s, and he looked at them, he goes, I'm not talking to you. In fact, don't say anything again until you're at least 30. And then everybody over 30 exploded with cheers. And I'm like, you don't know me. (laughs) But as I paused and I thought, wow, they're really cheering loud. Maybe there's something I'm missing about myself. Maybe there's something I needed to realize. Early in my 30s, I sat in this meeting. The guy who was speaking was in his 70s. He had been a missionary for 35 years. He was one of those guys that when he spoke, it just dripped gold from his mouth. At the end of it, I went up to him and I said, what's the biggest difference between being in your 30s and being in your 70s? And because of who I am, I'm like, besides the obvious. And he's like, I don't know what you mean. I'm like, whatever. What's the biggest difference? And he looked at me, and as close to what I can remember, he said this. Perspective. You can't fast track it. You can't cut corners. It happens over time. It happens when you allow God to teach you the things you cannot and will not learn on your own. He will bring you to places that are bigger than you, but not bigger than him. And he says, let me show you what I can do. When you resist that, you miss the chance to be discipled by the Lord of the universe. Your choice, Dale. And I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> there was this one moment at a conference where I was mocked for being a certain age group. And even though I'm like, oh, I get defensive. But then there was this engagement was something that I knew there was just so much more than I was experiencing in my life that it flipped something in me. I'm like, there's more to be known. Sometimes redirection might come from someone telling you so harshly that you're not sure what you want to do, 
But then there's those moments where it's like, I'm not who God wants me to be yet. How can I change? How can I mature? The beautiful part of all this is that training happens as you go. No discipline discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, the writer says. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The reality is for each of us, there's always something that's training us. It's leading us in a direction. It's either courage or fear. It's either truth or lies. But there's all, we're always being led by something. And that's what's residing in that space. That's what's residing in your filter. That's what's residing as things come in, what is the end result? You can have the greatest coffee beans in the world grounded to perfection and have purified water going in, but if you combine other elements into that filter, like dirt, (laughs) it ain't going to be the same result. You can be like, this is 99% of the best coffee beans in the world, but 1% dirt. And that's what we do. Paul describes it like this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. That's filter talk. Those are the things that should be in your filter. That's not one of those, you're a bad person for thinking about a bad thing. That's Paul saying, when your mind is on these things, the end result is there's some purity in your space. And when there's purity in your space, you respond to things differently. The things you hear and how you hear them, the challenges presented to you, the difficulties of life come out differently. The question I have to ask myself consistently is, who has this access to my heart, to my mind? How do, we, how do we know that? I look at things like this. What am I striving for? What do I want people to be saying about me right now? What am I looking for? Where am I looking for validation or worth or value? Those are all things that have access to my heart. Those are all things informing me on what's training me along the way. Sorry, I decided. It's, it's amazing when the Holy Spirit's convicting you in the middle of the sermon and you're giving the sermon. So, whew, hold on. Jesus gives us this paradigm. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. There's a saying sometimes when we say something that, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people like this, but this is what I do. Things are coming out of my mouth, and as they do, I'm, I'm trying to pull them back in, and I'm like, well, that's out there. You know, in maturity, you would, you would think that that would happen less often, I'm hoping. And then we say this phrase, like, well, I don't really know where that came from. The truth is we know it comes from here. That's one of the great revealers 
of what's happening in here. So we have to dive back in. Author Ken Geyer in his book, Reflective Life, says this, there's a way of living that prepares the heart so that something of eternal significance can be planted there. Hmm. For a long time, and still to this day, I get asked, um, what is your hope for your daughter? What kind of husband do you want her to have if she chooses to marry? And as she was growing up, I would say to her, you know, she was young. And I'm like, babe, if you give your heart to somebody one day, I want them to love Jesus so much. They've got to love you. And let's be honest, they got to love the 49ers. <laughs> and so... And so when she had an interest in a guy who was like a Seahawks fan, and I'm like, two out of three, you might think two out of three is not bad. Two out of three is like terrible. <laughs> but that was just kind of my joke. But she's dating a guy now who loves the Niners. So was it a joke? I don't know. <laughs> you will be doing this. But here's the actual truth. When somebody says to me, what is your hope? And I guess I say this as a dad, because I am one. My hope is that whoever she marries, the Holy Spirit has access to their heart, and the Holy Spirit is mentoring them. Everything else, nothing else matters. Is that if this person, if the Holy Spirit has access to them, and that's who's molding them, it's all good. And that becomes the us of perseverance. We love to debate and disagree and approve ourselves in so many ways, but the ultimate us of perseverance and community is, I'm just going to want my brother and my sister, to, that the Holy Spirit has access to their heart. Not so that they agree with me, but so that they agree with him. Because that's when we move because that's when change truly happens. Paul talks about it quickly like this, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what, what is behind and I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's the space. One final thought from Parker J. Palmer, he writes this. A leader is someone with the power to project either shadow or light onto some part of the world and onto the lives of the people who dwell there. A leader shapes the ethos in which others must live. An ethos is light-filled as heaven or shadowy as hell. A good leader is intensely aware of the interplay of the inner shadow and light lest the act of leadership do more harm than good. These aren't just those people who are leaders in the org chart. For Jesus has called us to be followers of him, and Jesus brought a revolution into this world for the kingdom to come and his will to be done. So our role and our responsibility is, are we shedding light or darkness? Do we reflect heaven or hell? is our ethos this place is better because we have entered. And it is only better when the Spirit has access to our heart and he is our mentor. 
because we're all living in the overflow of our lives, of our heart. And like Bobby, God isn't deterred by our present actions or what we might think our failures might be. This morning, God is saying to you, I love you. Give me some space. At times it comes by just saying, good morning, my child. And sometimes he's just saying, it's good to see you. And that's what I want you to hear today. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. God, help us to understand how we do not grow weary. Help us to understand perseverance. Help us understand maturity. At the end of the day, Holy Spirit, may you mentor us, guide us, be quick to correct, and may we be quick to respond so that we live in the fullness of who you are. We love you. In your name, amen.